Uh, for the folks at home, I'm a walker, so if I walk out of the screen, I apologize. We are in Lamentations chapter 3. Most people know something of Lamentations chapter 3 from the middle of the chapter. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. But that's not what we're preaching from today. There is much more in Lamentations chapter 3. If you ever hear a Muslim refer to you as Al-Khattab, I hope you smile and wear it as a badge of honor. Al-Khattab is the people of the book. Jews and Christians are both referred to as Al-Khattab. The book being the Bible. Only problem with that is very few Christians could be indicted as being Al-Khattab anymore. According to studies by Barna, Gallup, and Lifeway, 36% of evangelicals only read their Bible every day. One in three read their Bible every day. If you go into mainline Protestant denominations, that number drops down to 20%. That would be one in five. Fewer than half adults in America, this is kind of staggering, fewer than half of the adults in America can name the four Gospels. 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. I don't share this with you to guilt you, but to help you understand why we are turning to Lamentations this morning. All of God's Word is God's Word. And if Jesus Christ is the Word of God and I want to know my Lord and Savior, then I am going to weigh into all of it. Um, I'm actually reading through the prophets right now in my daily readings. And every time I get through the prophets, I want to go right back and start over. I love the prophets because they paint such a rich and majestic picture and a merciful picture of a, of a holy and righteous God, of a God who calls out to his people in grace and mercy. And it also reveals in very dark pictures my neediness and yours as well. As we turn to Lamentations chapter 3, those are the things that we are going to see this morning from the passage that we are going to read. We are going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 37 to 42. You can follow along with me. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled 
and you have not forgotten. Let's ask God to guard our hearts and minds this morning. Father, as we come to feed upon your word, that is what I ask and my, I plead that you would guard our hearts and minds, that, that our ears would be attuned to the voice of your word. Father, guard my lips today. Guard my heart. Oh, that you would be high and lifted up, that we would see you and delight in you. Oh, God, that we would be led by the good shepherd that you are. For your glory here in this place, in your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of background here for Lamentations. It's kind of hard to plow into the middle of a book and go, where are we? What's going on here? Israel has gone into captivity in 722 B.C. Uh, They did not follow after the Lord. They had no good kings. Israel, the northern kingdom, after it divided. Judah, the southern kingdom, had good kings and bad kings. They had kings who did heed the word and some that didn't. They had kings who followed after the prophets and some who didn't. Jeremiah came on the scene at the tail end of the Judean kingdom. 625 B.C. to about 586 B.C. when Judah was led into captivity was the time of Jeremiah. He came on the scene when Josiah was in his 13th year, when he was 21 years old. In Second Chronicles chapter 35, you read about Jeremiah's lament of Josiah. And if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah, you would see that Jeremiah spoke against the kings, the last four kings of Israel after Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and pleaded with all of them that they would return to the living God. That they would repent heart and soul themselves and lead their people back toward God. Chronicles, it's, it's beautifully written. The end of Chronicles, it reads, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 16. And so in 586, Judah is taken into captivity as well. And it is in this time, in this season, that Jeremiah writes his lamentations. It is a time of terrible darkness for Jeremiah. As he begins chapter 3, it's, it's as he is the voice of Israel, verse 4, He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. 
He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. I was reading this in Wisconsin. And I came to these next two verses on a very dark night. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. This is Judah. After they've gone into captivity. It is darkness. It is devastation. And even in this extraordinary little anchor, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I mean, it's, it's like the sunlight just goes, just squirts through there for a moment, but then it covers over again. It's almost like there's just a hint of, of light. It's, it's like reading through Ecclesiastes when every now and then Solomon gets his head up into the sky above the sun because under the sun all is devastation. Every now and then he gets a glimpse. So the book of Lamentations is a, it's a dark read. It's a hard read. And we see in our country even now a turbulent time. It seems that our nation is coming apart even at the seams. The marriage rate in the United States is at the lowest it has ever been in history. And I don't mean just the last two months because we're all under shelter in place. I mean like last year. The massive machine of American production has been essentially ground to a halt. What can we expect in the future? Is there going to be great famine? Is there going to be great poverty? We, poverty, we don't know. We do know pestilence. We're seeing pestilence right now. When we look across the oceans, we see plagues of locusts. And did you hear what's new? The murdering hornet has shown up in America. A strain of a hornet that will wipe out a hive of bees like that has showed up in the United States. Sweet. But a time of plague and a time of discouragement and a time of difficulty is not new to the church. As we see here in Lamentations, it was not new to Israel. And so my desire is for us to hear the call of the prophet this morning. The first thing I really want us to glean from this passage is from verse 37. And that is God is absolutely sovereign in the seen and the unseen. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? God is the God of the prophets. God is the God who sent the prophets. 
If a prophet speaks and it comes to pass, it is because God has sent him and declared it to be so. But if we take it down even further, there is nothing that man can do apart from the word of God and his sovereign hand. And in 21st century America, that makes us bristle. We go, well, we immediately want to excuse God from the evil of the world and darkness and go, well, God really doesn't have a hand in that. And we, on the other side, we want to assert our own free will. Well, I've got to say, certainly, but let us consider what God's word says. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Throughout Scripture, God is referred to as Almighty, El Shaddai. We sang about that this morning. Almighty. Forty-eight times that word is used in the Old Testament to describe the living God. Jesus Christ declared to his disciples in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. All things were created by him and for him. All things hold together and by him they consist. Colossians chapter 1. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Another descriptor of the living God we see in verse 38. We're not going to drop down there yet, but you can look. He is referred to as the Most High. El Elyon. Now, think of Mount Everest, 29,029 feet. The next highest mountain is a mere 800 feet short of Everest, K2. Okay, so by comparison, you know, it's like brothers standing there going, and one's like this much higher than the other. You go, that's not much. But if you compare Everest or K2 to Mount Scott, and those mountains are five miles higher than Mount Scott, you go, whoa, those mountains, they're most high. And God is higher still. What does this mighty God, this most high God do? Whatever he pleases. Jeremy read that this morning. God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135. Psalm 115 verses 2 and 3 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God Almighty, God Sovereign, does all that he pleases. 
Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? He is sovereign over all things. This certainly then makes us wonder about evil in the world. And Jeremiah's lament addresses that in the very next verse and takes us to our second point. And that is God, who is sovereign over all things, is sovereign over good and evil. Lamentations 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And we read that and we balk. We go, ah. Now, the way this question is written, it's a rhetorical question. It's, it's an obvious question. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And the obvious answer is yes. The obvious humble answer is yes. But again, we're 21st century Americans and we go, oh, whoa. Good and evil? We attempt to defend God against soiling his hands with evil and in so doing, we finger paint a little g God who is not God at all. God asks us, will we accept what he says about himself to us in Scripture and strive to comprehend his revelation to us? When we turn up our noses at what Scripture says, those who should be judged stand in judgment against the only true, righteous, and worthy judge. How much better for the redeemed saint and the condemned sinner to listen to what God declares about himself. And so here is where we read, from the mouth of the Most High. The mouth of the Most High. This is the mouth that declared the heavens and the earth to exist in a word. This is the mouth that called Lazarus from the dead. This is the mouth that healed a Gentile general's servant from long distance. This is the mouth of the Most High God. There is none greater. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. We have to understand that. God is over all, and that means he has all authority over good and evil. Before we dismiss it as, it can't be, let's hear it for what it is. Now, we have no trouble with the good. We go, ah, you know, it's from the mouth that good comes, or from the mouth of God that good comes. We go, great. You know, we almost expect God as our heavenly grandfather is going to slip us a fiver, you know, put in our wallet. Sweet. Yeah, because we're good. And as a, you think of us as a society, we have ceased to measure ourselves against an ultimate good. 
we do measure ourselves against an ultimate evil, that ultimate evil being Adolf Hitler. And if we go, if I'm above Adolf Hitler, I'm pretty good. And so we are constantly measuring ourselves against an abysmal example. But we are never as good and holy and righteous as the living God. Mount Scott to Mount Everest, and then some. So when the good comes, we're good with the good. We do great, wonderful. But evil? Well, maybe that word really doesn't mean evil. You know, maybe it's one of those words that kind of means something else. If you were to look at all the different translations, there's some places you can go where you can take that verse and see all the English translations. And almost every one of them is bad or evil. Bad or evil. Few variations of that. If you were to refer to this word that says in, in the ESV it says bad, if you were to look elsewhere in Scripture, the men of Sodom were, the word is ra. The men of Sodom were ra. In Genesis 6, the word is used to describe man before the flood. They were ra. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph, in speaking with his brothers about what they did to him, Joseph says, you meant it for Ra, but God meant it for good. And in that picture right there of Joseph, you see God's sovereignty over good and evil. So the word Ra in this section of Lamentations 3 leaves us little wiggle room. It means raw. It means evil. Now, if from the mouth of the Most High good and bad come, let us not assume or let us not take that to a wrong extreme and suggest that God is the source of evil. 1 Peter chapter 1, we've, we've been looking at in our men's study. Invite the guys to come along uh, to that. It's been a good study so far with guys from as far away as Chile to Minnesota. So God is holy. 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. Citing back to Leviticus 11.44. God is holy. He cannot be the source of evil. James 1.17 says... There is no shadow or variation even in him. There is no stain. James 1.13 says, He tempts none with evil, nor can he himself be tempted with evil. He is righteous. He is the most high. We have unleashed evil upon the world. Upon God's perfect creation within the realm that he had given to mankind man first stood in judgment of the living God and brought into the cosmos evil 
both moral and physical, brought upon all humanity, Adam and Eve, upon you and I today, evil. Joseph recognized that evil in the world does not have its source in Almighty God, but he understood that God is sovereign now over evil to constrain it and to unleash it for his good purposes. I ask you to flip over to Ezekiel 21. It's what I read. In the middle of the service, Ezekiel 21, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I will cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. As you read through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through Isaiah, you see that God uses pestilence and evil in the world. God uses the sword from heathen nations to bring His judgment upon Israel. God uses famine and poverty. Again, moral evil. Why did God do this? That they would know that He is the Lord. But is this not what we see in the world today? Who gets sick with the coronavirus? Only the wicked? Who gets cancer? Righteous and wicked. Whose home gets destroyed by tornadoes and typhoons? The righteous and the wicked. Can God stay the hand of a murderer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he does not. My brother is profoundly deaf. 22 years old. Boom. Completely. Hearing, hearing, hearing. Boom. Gone. Totally. Exodus 4.11 says, Who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What are we going to do with that? Our problem is we are apt to make bad theology out of those passages because we can't come to terms with them apart from just accepting what it says. We're apt to say, well, there is no God. These are just 
the things that happen. I am nothing more than a ricocheting pinball in the tilted game of life. I have no hope. I have no purpose. Or, I'm apt to say, God is against me. That's what Ahab said up in Israel. Micaiah, yeah, he's just going to prophesy against me some more because God's against me. Ahab might want to think about that a little bit. If I just walk around thinking, well, God's against me, darkness is going to cover my life, and I just throw up my hands in apathy. Or, like Rabbi Kushner, who wrote, when bad things happen to good people, we make God impotent. He can't do anything about it. It's just there. He's, you know, he's, I don't want to, I don't want to indict God, so he can't do anything about it. Please don't serve such a God. Better for you to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die than to serve that thing that is no God. John Piper, his little book, Christ and the Coronavirus, which is free, free at Desiring God, great little book on great theology about good and evil. He wrote the same sovereignty that could stop the coronavirus yet doesn't is the very sovereignty that sustains it, excuse me, sustains the soul in it. The sovereign hand that chooses not to stop the coronavirus or even to usher it in is the hand that will sustain us through it. As Jeremiah laments in verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Is he not sovereign? Did I not just say that? He is implying that God has purpose that we down here on Mount Scott, even at the base of Mount Scott, cannot understand, cannot comprehend. Joseph said this very thing, what you meant for evil, God has intended for good. Or as Job has cried out, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Don't know why. I'd love to plead my case. That's pretty much the whole letter. Blessed be the name of the Lord when he lost his health, his wealth, and his children. And this takes us to the last point. God doesn't leave us in this. God doesn't leave us in this agony. He calls people to himself that they may know that I am the Lord. Now, some days it's not going to make sense. Some days you're not going to get it. And some days you're going to sit on the ash heap and scrape your skin with shards of pottery. Seventy-two times in Ezekiel. Seventy-two times 
in Ezekiel, God says, I have done this that they may know that I am the Lord. That's why we can pray. God is not capricious. God is not arbitrary. He doesn't just roll his dice and go, ooh, bummer for him, and pop him off. What is a saint to do? What is a believer to do with this? God says in verse 39, why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sin? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven Why should a man complain? Now we understand Romans 8 verse 1. Let's stand on this. Let's put our arms around it. Let us rejoice in the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. None. Joy, joy, joy. But God will use suffering. God will use the consequences of sin. God will use the consequences of my sin as a believer to bring about his glory and to bring about what he wants in my life. And he may use my sin to bring about what he wants in your life. How's he going to work? How's he going to do it? I don't know. He didn't tell me. But his word makes these things plain to us. Shall I complain about this life? I heard a message here this, this last week. Jesus was so serious about sin that he used the metaphor or the hyperbole, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to go into glory minus one hand than to go into heaven, or excuse me, to go into hell, the hellfire of perdition, whole. Might God discipline you by cutting your arm off? Maybe. Johnny Erickson now believes, will say this, that her diving accident, she sees as God's discipline to her life. Not punishment, discipline. That she would be the woman God would have her to be. Can God use such evil for good? Absolutely. Jeremiah calls us to test and examine our ways and return to the Lord in verse 40. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Oh, here's all our money. Nope, dead. 
They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. Were they believers? There's nothing to indicate they weren't. But there was discipline in their life, really severe. Would it have been worse? Why did God do this? I don't know. I can see reasons within the church to see the severity of sin within the church. How serious was God about the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had an inappropriate relationship with his mother? Let's turn him over to Satan that Satan might buffet him for a time. Not, not just for giggles. <laughs> Man, I am not him. No, to bring him back. How far is God willing to go because he loves you to make you be the man or woman he wants you to be? For the saint, we understand that God has created a moral universe. If I go out and I drive drunk, I might get thrown in prison. Does that happen to believers? Yes. Do believers have to live with the consequences of their rage? Yes. If they get fired because they couldn't hold their temper. Do believers lose their families because they had relationships outside of marriage? Yes. Do pastors lose their pulpits? Yes. And this is God's good discipline. God uses evil and, and badness for purposes of preparation. Moses got punted out of Egypt. 40 years of preparation with sheep in the wilderness. Joseph's was largely in prison. Preparing him to become number two in all of Egypt. God will use evil and pain to drive you deeper in your faith, in your trust of the living God. That is what happened with Paul, who had a problem so severe that he begged God three times for him to take it away from him. Three times in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And it led Paul to a greater level of faith and trust. In all of these things, we see the living God glorified. How's the sinner? How should one who does not know the Lord see such events when evil becomes them? You know, look at the end, verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgotten. For the one who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, evil besets them, evil comes upon them, and they're like, whoa! God is using this to open their eyes to the perdition to the suffering that they will know for eternity hey it's going to be way worse than this if you do not turn back to me 
Come back to me now. Let us return to the Lord. God is calling the sinner. Hey, you don't want to keep going this way. The end is worse. Come back to me now. So not only is God's use of pain and badness and evil in this world a a picture for the sinner of what's to come, but more than that, God is God's not just rubbing his hands together going, <laughs> I got this, we're stoking the fires for you. He's not saying that. He's going, the fires are stoked. Come back. Come to me. Harsh days and harsh times ought to cause every one of us to introspect. What complaint can I make against God? Really? Really? Am I only willing to receive the blessings and then curse his name when difficult days come? Why should a living man complain? Oh, church, oh, keep that we would get off our high horses and kneel in humility before our God and Creator. So this is a call for both sinner and saint to test and examine our ways and to return to the Lord. Now it's important for us to understand that we cannot lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven, verse 41, if they're filled with idols. I can't lift up my hands to God and still hold to my covetous ways. What consumes the hours upon hours of our shelter-in-place time? What fills your mind? Turn back to God. Are we people of the book? Are we all al-Katab? God gives us eyes to see our transgression and our rebellions, both sinner and saint. Here, only God can give us those eyes to see. Oh, that we would trust Him in obedience. Oh, that we would cede over to Him the reins of our lives, our rightful Lord and Savior. Let's bow together. Father, help us even now to give you the glory due to your name. Oh God, help us to bow heart and soul before you. Oh God, more and more that we would trust in you, that we would not be a fretful people, that we would not be a panicked people, but we would know that you are sovereign and you have good purpose. Help us to shatter the images and the idols that we have set up to put them off. Help us to magnify you in our hearts and our minds. Oh, God, that we would savor you and delight in you as we go from this place to be a salty people, a blinding people in a drab and dark world. Still our restless hearts, and may we find their satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name, amen.